Rabbi Alex Israel, Naaman, Humility and Hubrus. Okay, Boker Tov. Uh, just one disclaimer. For some reason there was a mistake on the, uh, on the title of the Shir, where it's uh, addressed as the story of Naaman and it says uh, one kings, but it's actually in Malachim Bet, second kings. So anybody who thinks they're studying uh, Malachim Aleph Perak and really wanted to study that chapter should, I don't know, study it by themselves. Because we're going to be doing Malachim Bet, um, Parake, the story of Naaman. You won't find too many references to Naaman in Malachim Aleph, Parake, sorry. Um, this chapter that we're going to study today um, may just be the most uh, unlucky Haftarah in the series of Haftarot. Um, there is a famous saying, it's found in the Zohar, um, that hakol taloi b'mazal, everything is dependent on uh, some sort of good fortune. Afilu sefer Torah shebehichal, even the sefer Torah needs mazal. I'm not quite sure. I think it's a rather theologically problematic statement, but I'm not going to get into it too much. But I say this haftarah doesn't have too much mazal, because it, the, this chapter is the haftarah for Parshat Tazria, and invariably we read Tazria Matzora and we skip over this story, and. Um, even in the years where Tazriya and Torah, like this year, are, s- are separated, um, what happens is this year it was Parshat HaChodesh, so we don't get a chance to read this story. Either it's Parshat HaChodesh, Shabbat HaGadol, or what have you. So I feel that this, um, you know, this uh, Haftorah has been gypped a little bit, so it's uh, time for us to pay it a little bit of attention. Maybe I'll say one other thing which attracts me to this chap- chapter, which is that uh, when I was a little boy, I don't know how old, six, seven, eight. Um, in England, we used to have these uh, early reader books. They were called Ladybird books. And um, most of them, I don't know what they were about, various different wars, Henry VIII, whatever, who knows. But there was one which I had on my shelf called Naaman and the Little Maid. And I used to read it quite often because I thought it was a very cool book. It was about the God of Israel and a prophet. I had no clue it was from Tanakh. Uh, but I thought this was a really a, an amazing Sefer. And one, one time later in life, I discovered this was actually in Sefer Malachim. And uh, we seem to have a very strong affinity to things that we uh, connect with in our childhood, our girsadiyan kuta. And um, to that effect, maybe we should be, you know, attendant to the things that we give our children and grandchildren to read, because they seem to draw very deep emotional ties. Whichever way, this this, uh, story comes uh, from the depths of my childhood, uh, through the pages of the Tanakh, and I hope we'll give it an adult makeover, a more adult uh, read. But uh, the initial love for this story comes from a little child reading these, reading these stories. Okay, what we're going to do, I don't know how many people know the story, um, have read the Perak recently, so I'm just going to quickly do a, a summary of the story, uh, just so that we can understand the various processes of the storyline. Um, and uh, once, once we've got the story down and everything that happens there, then we're going to engage in a close reading and try and understand the various different contours of this story. And uh, I think we're going to see the story come alive in a new way. So you want to take a look at Malachim Bet Perak Hay. And I'm going to quickly summarize what happens in the story. Um, we have here a kingdom called Aram. Just to understand, Aram is today Syria, capital Damascus. That hasn't changed. They are um, an enemy of Israel. We're always at war with them, particularly in this portion of Tanakh, 
just a few chapters earlier, it is Aram who killed the king of the northern kingdom, Achav. And frequently, they are an adversary of ours. Our attention in this chapter turns to the chief of staff, the Ramakal, the head of the army. His name is Naaman. And he has a small problem, which is that he is a leper. He has Sarat. Now, I know this is not... Uh, I'm not going to get involved in the whole discussion of leprosy, Hansen's disease. Um, the Torah uses the word Sarat. The Tanakh uses the word Sarat. Whatever Sarat is, I know the Rambam says it's a spiritual disease. It certainly seems in this context that it's different from what we know medically of leprosy. Sometimes I might pronounce, use the word leprosy just for use of a English translation, but we know that Sarat is its own entity. Naaman has Sarat, which is a bit of a problem. He also has a slave girl, and this slave girl is an Israelite uh, young girl, and she tells him, you know what, if you want to be cured from Sarat, go to Israel, go to Shomron, there's a prophet there, he'll cure you. Naaman then approaches the king for permission to go across the border to Israel, and the king sends a letter, the king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel, and says to him, I'm sending my chief of staff, and you're going to cure him of leprosy. The king panics. He says, I don't understand. Um, I, God, that I can bring people alive or make them die. He thinks, he says, that this is basically a, an excuse to go to war. What does it sound like? I'm sending my chief of staff and you're going to cure him. And then obviously, or else, or else, I'm going to declare war against you. Why sending the chief? It's very strange. And the king assumes that basically this is a rather, I don't know, maybe the king of Aram found it entertaining, an interesting way of going to war with Israel. He tears his clothes and announces a crisis. At which point, Elisha, the prophet in Shomron, says, send him to me. And indeed, what happens is that uh, Naaman goes to see Elisha. Elisha tells him to bathe in the Yardane, in the Jordan River, seven times. Um, initially, he resists. He doesn't want to do it. He says, I've got better rivers in, in Syria. I don't need this miserable Yardane. And eventually, he is persuaded to, um, to bathe in the Yardane seven times. And miraculously, his skin is repaired. And he comes back to the Navi, comes back to Elisha, and professes that now he believes in Hashem, now he believes in that Hashem is the only true God, and um, we will see the, the course of the conversation. Initially he wants to pay the Navi, Navi says, no, I don't accept payment, it's all Hashem. And uh, the last thing he says is, all I ask you to do is excuse the fact that since I am the second in command to the king of Aram, when the king of Aram goes into his um, shrine, when he goes into his temple, and he wants to worship his god, who here is called Rimon. Um, I'll talk about that later if we have a chance. Um, I have to, he bows down, and I have to support him. So I'm going to have to bow down as well. He says, maybe God can excuse me for that. I don't really mean it. Okay, I just have to support the king. This is not a man making excuses before the Navi, I'm really a true believer, but if I do anything which you know seems to indicate that this is not the case, then I don't really mean it. And off goes Naaman in a sense of true belief of Hashem. And that sounds like the end of the story, except that then something very strange happens. Gehazi, who is Elisha's sidekick, Gehazi comes along and says to, to himself, well, he didn't take any money. The prophet didn't take any money. The guy is very wealthy. 
and he goes, runs after him, and makes up a whole story, which we will see, and says, you know, maybe you could give some money, you know, I've got a couple of yeshiva bachrim, you need a little bit of help, or maybe a little bit of hachnasas kala, whatever it is, doesn't quite say it that way, and uh, in the end, Naaman uh, gives him some money, and uh, when he gets home, Elisha says, you know, what did you think you were doing? This is a terrible thing. And at the end of the story, we see Gehazi, Elisha's own assistant, get afflicted with the Tzarat of Naaman, with Naaman's Tzarat. That's, in short, the story for those who don't know it. Um, when we look at this story, and I think the way it's frequently read, is that it is one of Elisha's miracle stories. There is no Navi who does miracles quite like Elisha. In fact, one of the interpretations of the, of the stories of Elisha is that when Elisha turns around to Eliyahu and says, please give me a double portion of your spirit, that indeed Eliyahu did eight miracles and Elisha did 16. Um, Elisha is really one of the most uh, remarkable prophets in terms of his miracle making. And many people will see this story as yet another in the, in, in, in the sequence of miracle stories, showing the power of the prophet. And maybe I'd say further than that, the power of a Kiddush Hashem. In fact, we could balance the Kiddush Hashem, which Elisha does, by not accepting money, by healing this great army general, against the Chilul Hashem, the Chilul Hashem of Gehazi. This miracle, which was meant to be attributed to God, in fact, the line that we have here in the Perak, Perak Hay, Pasuk, uh, Chet, where Elisha turns around and says to the king, Lama karata bagadecha yavono elai v'yeida navi Israel is read by many as not let him know that there is a prophet in Israel, but rather let him know that there is a God in Israel. The whole idea is l'kadesh shem shamayim. In fact, this is tremendously successful. Because, of course, as we mentioned, the Aman is converted to a belief in Hashem, to monotheism. And, of course, Gehazi somehow tears that asunder. He undermines that whole process. So, I think that's the standard way in which the story is read. Elisha's miracles brings people to Emunah in Hashem. This is a story of incredible Kiddush Hashem. And the reverse, if you want the postscript to the story is Gehazi's Chilol Hashem. And then we could wrap up the Shia here, if that was all there was to say. But I would like to sort of unpack the story in terms of a close reading of its language and uh, want to probe some of its uh, deeper currents and meanings and uh, what I think is the, is the message. Um, I like to always, uh, when I speak and when I write, to quote my sources. So I will definitely say that one of the most significant influences on my reading of this chapter is a book by Yair Zakovich called Gavoa Me'al Gavoa. It's a 150-page book just on this chapter. Um, and uh, it's a pretty phenomenal close read of the book. Um, and um, I just want to mention that because it certainly influenced uh, the way that I'll present this, this parak. What we're going to do is we're going to start reading the chapter pasuk by pasuk and see what we can make of it. So let's turn to Pasuk Aleph. V'na'aman sar melech aram Naaman, the army officer of Aram, Aram, the Ramatkal, was a great man before his master, 
Nasupanim like Isa Hashem means a man of great social standing or societal standing. Kivot Natan Hashem Chuala Aram, because through him God had given victory to Aram. Vaish Haya Gibar Chayel Mutsura. The man was a man of valor, Gibar Chayel, a warrior. Mutsura. Let me just say, by the way, Gibar Chayel doesn't necessarily. Uh, means something military. We see, for example, Shaul is called a Gibar Chayel even before he's been in the military. Uh, Boaz is called Gibar Chayel. Um, it might mean a man of great, uh, I don't know, qualities. But this man is a military man, so Gibar Chayel features. Although I have to say, once you know he's the Sartz of Amalek Haram, you wonder why you need the, the phrase Gibar Chayel. Now, indeed, this is a very long introduction what you call in academic circles, an exposition. Uh, exposition exposes the character. And you wonder why you need such a long pasuk. So many details. Sar tzavam el haram, ish gadol, ifnei adonav, nesupanim, von natan Hashem chual aram, he's gibor chayel. Of course, by the way, we're waiting for the, for the last piece in the pasuk. He has all these accolades, but... He's a Mitzorah. He's got a severe problem. Maybe he can't appear within society. Maybe this is affecting his ability to lead. Um, this is the downside. But I think on a closer read of this opening Pasuk, we can see something very interesting happening. Yair Zakovich divides this Pasuk into four sub-phrases. And he says that each phrase gives you a virtue and then a qualifier. Some sort of point which is a, a, a side where we will praise Naaman, and then something which, if you want, limits that particular uh, virtue. Let's read it together and let's see what we're talking about. The Naaman is Sartava. He is an officer of the army. So when we hear that, we would think, great, great, he's got his own army. But it is Sava Melacharam. So, it's not his army. It's an army which belongs to somebody else. He's an Ish Gadol. He is a great man. We're going to see how this notion of Gadol and Katan is going to come in, even the notion of Ish, as opposed to what I'll talk about in a second. He's an Ish Gadol. He's a great man. But he is Lifnei Adonav. He is subservient to his master. In other words, he's an Ish Gadol in his own right, but he has a master who he has to be answerable to. On a supanim, he is of great social standing. Is he just of his own right? No. The psukim tell us, natan Hashem aram. It's not really because it's his power. It's because Hashem has given him these victories. Va'ish haya gibor chayel. He's a mighty warrior. But he's a Matorah. In other words, you could almost take these four introductory phrases and add in a word. You could say, Naman Sartava, and you could still say, but, or, you know, put a but in between. Sartava, but it's of Melacharam. Ishkadol, but, Lifneal Donav. Mesupanim, but, Natan Hashem Chuala Aram, Gibor Chayel Matzorah. But, Matzorah. What I'm trying to say is that we have here a certain notion that wherever we stand, there is uh, something which limits us. 
uh, we wonder whether anybody is the top of the totem pole. And I'm going to underscore this with drawing your attention to two words which are used in this story, which are milim manchot. I'm sure if you've spent enough time in the Yumeiyun, you know what a milim, milim manchot, leading words, um, late words, words which recur in the story time after time, and they become sort of an interplay, and you will definitely see it with these particular words, um, which recur, each of these in this story come up seven times, and they're very simple, small words, maybe you wouldn't even notice it. One word is lifne. Who do you stand before? Lifne. Literally, who do you face, or you, you're standing in the face of somebody, you're subservient. The other word which is going to recur is the word adon. Master. And what I'm going to claim when we're looking at this chapter is that there is a, built up here a certain a certain study of hierarchy, of social ranking, of the way that society is ordered with different tiers, with certain levels of society and layers of authority and people who are subordinate to that authority. And uh, how do we exist within this architecture of society and that's going to be one of the huge questions that is going to be developed in this in this chapter now in order to express this I think it's been expressed through the opening pasuk but let's see how it, how it plays through in the first few pasukim Aram yatsu gududim I'm reading pasuk bet Aram went out uh, in bands ve'yishbum eret Yisrael na'arakatana but he lifnei eshet in the Amman. Just a few words here. It seems that at this point, Aram haven't engaged in full military conflict with Yisrael. Later on, we find, even in the next chapter, them besieging the capital city, Shomron. At this stage, it seems like they're engaged in sort of gududim, some sort of war of attrition, where there are border attacks. I know this all sounds a bit close to, close to home. And it seems like there are, uh, there's a sense of wearing down the border towns, like, like Sterot and things like that where you're trying to, um, you know, you know, slowly, slowly, by not too much power, but a little, gududim, you send a gudud here, a gudud there, and what do you do? You take prisoners, right? You take people of the civilian population, and uh, everybody gets very upset, and then people don't want to live in those border towns, and then, you know, it weakens the situation. So that's the military situation at that point. They take from Eretz, it's, by the way, this is one of the few times in Tanakh, I think it's only three times, that we have the combination Eretz Yisrael in Tanakh. Um, usually it's Eretz Canaan or Haaretz or Eretz Yisrael, very rare. They take from Eretz Yisrael a Na'arak Tana, a young girl, Vati Lifnei Eshet Naaman. She is subservient. She works for Eshet Naaman. We never find out her name. Okay? So we have almost, she is the Na'ara at the bottom of the, the totem pole of Eshet Naaman. And you can see here, she is Lifnei Eshet Naaman. And look at the hierarchical language here. Vatomer El Gevirta. She says to her mistress, Achalei Adoni, Lifnei Anavi Asheba Shomron. Why doesn't my master, in other words, we have her mistress, but the mistress also has a master, Lifnei, before the prophet who is in Shomron, Az Yesof Otomi Sarato. We wonder whether this young girl who lived up in the Galil on the northern border even knows the name of the prophet in Shomron. Maybe she's just heard miracle stories and uh, she just knows of his existence. But she's quite convinced 
that if her master will go to Shomron, he will be able to, Yesof Otomitara'ato, he'll be able to heal him. So, now we see the next stage of the story, which I think is quite deliberate, which is that, we don't even hear the uh, stage of the story in which Mrs. Naaman tells General Naaman. Okay, they miss out that bit of the story, but we immediately witness him. Naaman comes and tells his master. Now, one thing you're going to find in the story is, of course, this Naaraktana has the key to the story. And when we think about Naaraktana and her existence at the bottom of this hierarchical model, of course, maybe the king's at the top, but we were introduced in the introduction to an Ishgadol. And of course, this Ishgadol is so great, but he's in the Torah. Who's going to have the key? Not an Ish, but a Naara. Not a Gadol, but a Ktana. Um, and we're going to see this even in, in maybe the pivotal scene. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but I don't think I'm giving too much away. Where if you look at the bit where he is healed, and I think it's quite significant, uh, look at Pasuk Yudalad. If you look at Pasuk Yudalad, it says, Vayered Vayitzbol Yardain, he goes down to bathe in the Yardain, Sheva Pa'amim, Kidvari She'elokim, Vayashob Besaro Kibsar, Nar Katon Vayithar. The question is, is the Ishkadol going to be able to come, become into a Narkaton? And it's fascinating that the, the key, the key to this whole process comes from the Naraktana. And once we've built this hierarchical model where she has a Gvira, who has herself an Adon, and then he has to go to his Adon, right? Everything has to go through the correct channels. Things can't happen without societal, the corridors of power, without appeal, filling in the right forms and appealing to the correct authority. That's how our societies are structured. And yet, the answer comes from the person who is the lowest of social standing, the Na'araktana, the slave girl. So, this is what happens. Um, he tells his master, Aleymar, Kazot v'kazot dibreha na'ara Hashem Eretz Yisrael. Um, so we have the solution. Vayomer, I'm going to read a few pesukim now. Vayomer melech haram lechpo go and I'll send a scroll or a, a letter to Melech Yisrael. Vayelach vayikach biado eser kikreis kesef. He takes with him ten um, ten matbeot. Uh, I don't know ten sort of things of silver. V'sheish talafim zahav and and 6,000 coins of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. I'm not quite sure how to match why there's way more gold than silver and clothes, but we won't get into that now. And this letter is brought to Melech Yisrael saying, Now when this letter comes to you, I am sending you Naaman, my servant, Avdi. Notice again the hierarchical language. And you will cure him from his sarat. When Melech Yisrael reads the book, he tears his clothes. What am I God that I can bring alive or I can make die? This person is sending to me that this man should be cured from his leprosy. He is just starting with me. By the way, 
Here we see the very famous tradition that a Mitzorah is considered as somebody who is dead. Uh, we have that also in the Torah. In the story of Miriam, the idea that somehow a Tzarat, is, a Mitzorah, is in a category of, of, of the dead. Let's just read a couple more lines. When Elisha, the Ish Elohim, heard that Melech Yisrael had torn his clothes, he sent to the king and said, um, I'd like to just talk about this scene a little bit. Um, all the Mepharshim look at this letter, this letter that is sent from the king of Aram to the king of Israel. And they wonder whether this is the true text of the letter. The reason is because if you look at the letter itself, um, it's Pasuk Vav. Where's all the preamble? Your royal highness, may you live forever. You are such a wonderful king. All the things that we would expect. In fact, the Abarbanel says, well, that must have just been cut out. The, the, the Tanakh decided not to put in all of those honorific titles. And uh, it just got down to business. I'm not so sure that's the case. We find this language, When this Sefer comes to you, we find it in all sorts of texts. The most famous archaeologically is the famous Lachish letters, where you find that whenever a senior officer comes to a subordinate with a demand, with an instruction, they don't say, you know, and you, Minister of the South, or whatever it is, but what they do is instead, they just come along and say, you better do this. And this is what they say. I'll give you an example from our Tanakh. Take a look just a few chapters earlier, a few chapters later, Perak Yud. In Perak Yud, Pasuk Bet, we have the king, a rather vicious king, Yehu. Yehu is engaged in a, in a um, <coughs> he's engaged in a revolution, and he writes to the officers of Shomron, he is the king, he's just taken over. And if you look there, it says, He sends to the various officers, Now, when this book comes to you, and this is what I want you to do. In other words, if a senior, if somebody who is in a senior position, somebody who is in a governing role, somebody who is in a, in a more senior role, is talking to a subordinate, how does he word his letter? Now let's go back to our chapter. If the king of Aram is addressing the king of Israel and he doesn't say, Your Royal Highness, I need a favor and what have you. But he just basically instructs him what to do. It's clear that he sees himself as far more powerful and he's basically giving, even though he's a king, he's giving him his marching orders. And that's why the king of Israel is so panicked. The language here is so clear. I am giving you an order. You are going to cure my army officer. Now, now we understand a little bit why, why it is that the king of Israel panics so much. Indeed, how exactly is he going to be able to cure Naaman? What's he going to do? Yes. We don't quite know. Okay, We're going to leave that question. There is a phenomenon in all of these chapters. Um, Perek Hei, Vav, Zayin, Chet, where it just talks about Melech Yisrael, 
as you can imagine, um, it is a machloket, who exactly is the king in this story. We will leave that uh, on the side. Um, <clears throat> although it does, maybe, if we were talking about this sort of like hierarchical theme, uh, this theme of power, maybe it helps that we don't get even the names, we just get the positions. Now here I need to say something, something even more uh, to explain a point here. And that is this. Obviously you'll say to me, why does the king panic? What should he do? Or who should he send for? Right? Right, send for Elisha. Pick up the bat phone, right? And, uh, you know, when you're in trouble, that's what you do. Call the prophet. So here we have to understand how there is a huge difference between the mindset of the king of Aram and the mindset of the king of Israel. Um, in the ancient world, kings had prophets on their payroll. We know this from the story of Pharaoh with his Khartoumim. And let me just say, prophets generally were not just uh, prophets as we see them throughout Tanakh. They were the people who ex- were philosophers. They were the opinion makers. They were their advisors. They were magicians. They were the scientists. They were psychologists. Right? I always wanted... You know, when you hear about various people, you hear about the Rambam and the Ramban, and each one they say, he was a philosopher, he was a doctor, he was a, um, you know, a grammatician, he was a scientist, he was an astrologer. How, you know, well, how, many, how many degrees did they have? So, so now, in, in today's world, we've, we've uh, separated all these disciplines. But if you read Plato, Aristotle, what have you, there was a world of knowledge. Men of letters were men of letters. They knew, every, you know, there was no difference between magic and science in those times and politics and, and, and what have you. People kept, kings kept, um, kept prophets on their payroll. Now let me say something more than that. The king was expected to tell the prophet what to say. We see this very clearly, for example, in the, where we have in the, in the court of Achav, there there were 450 prophets, Ochlei Shulchan Izevel, paid on the payroll of the queen. And in fact, they're fed their lines. When they go to war, they all say exactly what the king wants them to say. In another scene, in, in the book of Amos, Amos is prophesying against the king in the, in the temple in, in Bethel. And along comes the high priest and says, Amos, you can't prophesy here. Why? Ki migdash melechu. We changed that in our davening, but it's a migdash where everything is on the authority of the king. You have to say what the king tells you to say. In other words, the reason why the king of Aram sends the king of Israel is he assumes that the prophets are under his control. They are on his payroll. Oh, now let's look at the other side of the looking glass. What does the king of Israel think? Well, we know, Atanach. If there's one thing the king of Israel knows is, he knows that he cannot control the prophet. The prophet is not answerable to the king. The prophet is the greatest nemesis of the king. He is the greatest critic of the king. Here we don't have bands of prophets. We have always a lone prophet. And that lone prophet will come, and every time the king puts a, room, uh, puts a foot wrong, I'm having a have a disobedient microphone here. Um, every time, no, it's not this. I figured it out. Every time the 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 king of Israel puts uh, steps wrong, the prophet comes to critic him. So here we've got a. Why doesn't he call call the prophet? Why doesn't the king of Israel call Elisha? Because he never imagines that Elisha will do what he wants. When has the prophet ever done what the king wants? Of course, the king of Aram assumes that he has to go to the king of Israel because you have to go. You can't go to the, the prophet. is an employee of the king. So we have again this disconnect 
this absolute disconnect between the pagan society and the Jewish society where the hierarchy doesn't work. The hierarchy is disrupted in Israel. And that's why the king never ever assumes that he can call the prophet. Yeah. Ah, okay, so we will we will get to that very 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 soon. Um, all right, so here we have the situation where the Navi then turns around to the king and says, "Hey, leave it to me." So let's read a few pesukim here and progress with our story. Like, one second, okay. I will read pasuk again. When Elisha, the man of God, sees that the king of Israel has torn his clothes. Why are you tearing your clothes? Let him come to me. He will see there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman comes with all his horses and chariots and stands at the entrance of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sends a messenger out to him, saying, Go and bathe seven times in the Yardin, and your flesh will return to you, Utahar, you will be purified. I said, He's going to come out to me, He'll call out in the name of Hashem, his God. He will wave his hands on the place of the leprosy and it will be it will it will be cured. The rivers domestic better than all the waters of Israel. I will bathe in them and will be purified. He left in a rage. His servants came to him, notice the servants have the key again, and said, My father, Dabar Gadol, Hanavi Diberelecha, did he ask for something which was so Gadol, so big? Do it. Even when he asked you to bathe and be healed. He went and bathed in the Yardin seven times, like the word of the man of God, Here we see Naaman go to the prophet's house. And we see he get very upset when the prophet doesn't come out himself. No covered, right? Um, he comes to the prophet's house and you notice he doesn't, uh, he just stand outside. And Elisha sent out a messenger and just says, go bathe in the Yardin, and your, uh, your skin will be returned to you. He gets furious. Why does he get so furious? Notice, by the way, his response is articulated, and you hear his precise thoughts. Pasukut Aleph in Yubed express his thoughts, and they tell us a lot about him. Notice, first of all, that this statement um, that we hear from Naaman, the first time we've really heard his inner thoughts, begins with the word, Vayitzof Naaman Vayilach. And ends at the end of Pasuk Yudbet with, Vayifen Vayelach Bechema. Okay? In both cases he goes, and in both cases he's in a state of anger, fury, he's in a rage. Okay? What creates this rage? So I think there are two things that are bothering him. The first thing he says is, Vayomer Hine Amarti, I have thought, Eilai Yatso. 
Notice the use of that language. The first thing in the Pasuk, Okay? He's going to come out and he is going, there's going to be a, re, a procession. He's expecting, I'm the center of things. Notice how it's emphasized in the earlier Pasuk that he comes with his horses and chariot. Okay? And just stands at the Petach Habayit He stands there and he expects everybody to revolve around him. He expects everybody to come out, and more than that, I would say. He, he expects something else. He says, he'll come out, He will come out and call by the name of God, and he'll wave his hands, and the, the Sarat will be healed. His second point is, are much better rivers. As the Mepharshim says, the Radak says, I bathe every day, they haven't helped. Okay? They've got to be at least as good as the rivers in Israel. That doesn't uh, make any sense. What Naaman expects here is dignity. He expects pomp and ceremony. As one commentator put it, cloudy vapor and magical twilight. It was magic that drove the ancient world of religion and science, and that's what he anticipates. What does Elisha offer? Elisha offers something so simple. In fact, as the servants say to him, Davar Gadol, Tiberelacha, he wants something gadol. It's the fact that it's so simple, stark and katan, so small that he cannot bear. Think about what he really wants. Can you see if you can put that on in the first slide? Um, what he wants is to, he wants something grand. In fact, more than that. He wants to stand stationary and everything else to revolve around him. He doesn't want to have to go through a process. Okay, And in this regard... Let's see if we can get the quote up. Great. Previous one. I just wanted to uh, uh, share a quote. Hopefully the thing will come on in a second. Oh, beautiful. I better get out of the way. It's okay. It's just one quote. I decided to spare the printing. The, this is a quote from Rav Hirsch, um, where he says something I think which is very, very interesting. It's in his parish on Vayikra and he says, Judaism and paganism go in diametrically opposite directions. The pagan brings his offering in an attempt to make the God subservient to his wishes. The Jew with his offering wishes to place himself in the service of God. By his offering, he wishes to make himself subservient to the wishes of God. In the pagan world, you thought you could control the gods. That was the aim of your whole service, to get the gods to do what you want. Suddenly, what is happening here? Right? Uh, by the way, this is obviously different from what we find in Halakha. In Halakha, the Negev has to go away, and then you can go to the Mikvah. Then you can, once the, the, the leprosy has gone away, then you can go through the process of Tahara. Obviously, here it's totally different. But Naaman is seeking a ceremonial, magical ritual. Elisha is looking for him to become a little boy. He's looking for him to shed himself of his grandeur. He's looking for him to adopt a submissive pose. The pagan method assumes the gods will do all the work and man will just stand passive. But Judaism is looking for a korban, a kirva, a closeness to God. And therefore the curative power here is not the water itself. The curative power is whether Naaman is willing to vayered, to go down, and to go down into the water to shed his clothing and whether he is willing to, in some way, engage in a, in a rebirth. So this is really what is happening in this story, and that's why it's fascinating that the answer 
comes from exactly those Abadim. Elisha doesn't come out. He deliberately snubs him. He needs to teach him that change needs to come from inside himself. And he sends just an emissary. He sends a servant. Go, these are your orders. And you see his initial response is the front. And he's enraged and he can't cope with it. And it's his servants who say to him, he says, You're looking for big things, just do it. And when he does it, immediately it says, Okay, we need to hurry a little, so I'm going to move ahead with the story. Notice here, not only does it Vayashav Basaro in Pasukud Dalad, his skin returns to him, but now Vayashav El Isha Elokim. He it's not only his skin, but now he needs to return to the Isha Elokim. And here's the critical phrase: Now he understands that he is subservient to the Navi. Now I know there is no, no God in the world other than Israel. Take my gift. I brought all this silver, all this gold. Take my gift. What does the Prophet say? As God lives, that I stand before him, I cannot take. In other words, you think the power is invested in me because I'm the Prophet? No, you're standing lefanai, but I am standing lifnei Hashem, and therefore I cannot take the money because it's not my power; it's God's power. Notice, it takes a long time for Naaman to appreciate this point. Naaman is convinced, in the, as in the pagan world, that the power lies in the prophet, and therefore, what does he say? He, he, it says, "Vayiftarbo." He begs him, "Lakachat vayemaein," and he refuses. Okay, so in other words, at this point, it seems like Naaman gets the point. He understands that he is standing before the Prophet, but the Prophet stands before God. And this, it seems, before he said, there is no God except in Israel. But now he takes his emunah, if you want, to an even higher level. And let me show you how. Look what he says. Please give me just two donkeys of soil. I want to, you to please give me the soil of Eretz Israel, which I will take back to Aram with me. All the Mufrashim say, what does he need soil for? And they go back to the Pasuk, You fill the altar with earth that he wanted, he felt that the God of Israel somehow was contained within its earth. This is not the time to go into a whole connection of Aram and earth. You find at least three times in Sefer Malachim where there is a particular focus on earth or dust with Aram. They seem to have a particular uh, geographical view of a God. But it's fascinating that before he said, what do I need the rivers of Israel for? The rivers in Egypt, are mu- uh, the rig- sorry, the rivers in, in Syria are much better. Suddenly now he says, I'm not going to be able to worship another God. I better take back the soil of Eretz Israel so I can bring my korbanot on a on a, on a mizbeach which is made out of soil of Eretz Israel, right? And now he says the last thing: Please forgive me. Before I don't Beit Rimon, when we come to Beit Rimon, Rimon is the god Raman. We know about it. We even think we know where the temple was to Raman. Actually, is 
the side of the major mosque in Damascus, which is built on the side of a church in Damascus, which is built on the side of a Greek temple in Damascus, which we think is the same site as this Beit Rimon, the, 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 the god called um, either Baal Hadad or in Tanakh in Zechariah it talks about Hadad Rimon. Uh, archaeologists call it Raman, but it's the same thing. It may, could be that uh, the Tanakh tries to mock it by calling it Rimon, uh, whichever way. Um, when I go to Beit Rimon, notice here we see the reversal, the inversion of the hierarchy. He has to lean on me. Okay, he might be the king, but he's leaning on me. For those of you who are ears are alert to chiasms, this is a perfect chiastic pasuk, and maybe it reflects a certain inversion that I am. Well, I'm just like the the psukim are inverted, right? If you can see. Reverse the way things look. Don't accept the way things look. It's going to look this way. Flip it. I don't mean it. Notice the change in the Amman. When he came, initially, he was full of arrogance. He was blown up with himself. He was so full of himself now. He is so submissive. He's so grateful. He's so thankful. He's even, you know, almost apologetic. Wait, he's, he's nervous. He's hesitant. He says, oh, but I've got a problem, Rabbi, right? I'm going to bow down and it's not going to be quite right. Alicia says, don't worry, right? Lech shalom, it's okay. Bayelech kivrat eretz. Okay? Now, this is the story, and as I say, if this, if this was the only bit of the story, I think we would, you know, not miss a beat. It's a great story. We all cheer at the end, and everything's fantastic. And Vayashem Lamelech al But um, I think we have to read the end of the story to see the story's real power. So let's just read a few more, th- a few more psukim. Vayomer gechazi nar elisha ish ha'elokim. Hinei chasach adunei naman arami azeh. And Gechazi, Nar Elisha, the assistant of Elisha, Isha Elokim. You hear the hierarchy there? It's so clear. Says, Oh, poor, uh, my, my master has prevented, he has denied the Aman, to take all of that stuff. He should have, uh, you know, taken off his weight allowance a little bit, taken some of that silver and some of that gold. What a chaval, what a shame. We could have funded a few good shirim for the yeshiva. Right? Chai Hashem kim As God lives, I will run after him and take nothing from him. Okay? What he means is something from him. Right? Just, um, so I, sh- I, I want to show you how everything that Gechazi is going to do um, is the inverse of what we see here. Um, you'd expect that just like we have the Na'ar Katan, we now have Na'ar Elisha. We're anticipating the correct hierarchy. We have Gechazi, is the Na'ar Elisha. He is the boy of Elisha. He is going to be answerable to and responsive to Elisha, who is the Isha Elohim. In other words, Hashem's at the top. Then there's Elisha and Gechazi 
is the next in line. That's how we're expecting it. But we shall see that it's exactly the opposite of this. First of all, even his relationship to Naaman. Naaman ha'arami hazeh. Right? It's a sort of disdainful uh, relationship to him. But he says, Chai Hashem ki That phrase, Chai Hashem, notice how it was used by Elisha. Elisha used it, Chai Hashem Hashem, As God lives, I will not take. Gechazi has an upside down view of things. Chai Hashem ki Right? As God lives, I better take something. The whole crux of what Elisha was trying to do was not taking. Gehazi apparently sees Elisha's miracles as a source of income, as a source of prestige, as a source of power. Notice, by the way, Elisha, Chai Hashem Asha'amaliti Lefanav, he stands subservient. Whereas, Gehazi, Chai Hashem Kimratzi Acharav. We're going to see there's a lot of Acharav. Gehazi is turning things around in the reverse direction. And instead of standing Lifnei, who is meant to stand before, he is going to be standing Acharei. Let's keep, let's just see. Vayirdoth Gechazi Acharei Naaman. That's a strong word, Vayirdoth. To pursue, to hunt down. He has him in his sights. Vayirdoth Gechazi Acharei Naaman. He has him, he's preying on him. But look how Naaman responds. And here you see such a difference. Pasuk Chaf Aleph. He's chasing him down. Naaman. Naaman saw Rat Acharav. Notice again, Acharav, not the Fanal. Right? He didn't literally fall off. He alighted from the chariot. Likrato. In other words, Naaman is so unsuspecting. As we said before, Naaman is the Narkaton. He's believing. He thinks that everything that happens in Elisha's court is perfect, is pristine, is holy, is honest. And suddenly he doesn't know that Gehazi is coming near Dov, right? Edov asiga chalek shalal, right? I will come and get money out of this, okay? By Edov, and he simply thinks he's coming Likrato to meet him. And in the same way as Elisha sent him Lech Shalom, what does he do? Mayomer Hashalom, right? He says, ah, peace. And now we have Gehazi Pasuk Chafet, Mayomer Shalom Adon Shalom. Adoni shalachani leimor. He uses that wonderful word, my master sent me. But we sense already, we're sensitive to this word, Adoni. He's saying, my master sent me, but we know his master did not send him. He's lying through his teeth. How can you use that word, Adon, and betray the very master who you serve? Adoni shalachani leimor, hinei atazebawe laishnei na'arim. To gain use of that word, na'arim. Suddenly we are aware that Gehazi the Nar himself has Na'arim. We're going to see it more than once. He has two Na'arim himself. He is looking to create his own hierarchy. He is looking for himself to be the head of his own little empire. He himself has two Na'arim. Here two Na'arim come from Harifraim, Ibn Anabim, Tanala Lahemki Karkesev, Oshte Khalikha Badagim. Vayomer Na'aman, Hoel Kakiv crime. Take two. By the way, notice how he does this very carefully. He says, Two men, two lads have come from Harifraim. Please give them one uh, talent of silver and two changes of clothing. So what does Naaman say? Uh, two men, give them one talent of silver and two clothing. What does Naaman say? Take two, right? Notice how even Gehazi has a little bit of honor. He said, I'll take from him Mu'umah, but he really means a lot. But he obviously hinted to him to really give him two pieces of silver. You understand? 
There are two men, give him a piece of silver and two clinches of clothes. Not a month, not an idiot, he says. Well, if they're two men, I'll give them two clothes and two pieces of silver. I've got a lot here anyway, right? But even Gechaz, he's too embarrassed to ask for the whole thing, right? He has some kavod. Um, what I want you to see here is the the difference in the language here is so stark. He says, I will run after them. This is a precise inversion of the language of Naaman. He says, I will only have God. He says, I'll just take a little bit of money. Okay? When Gechazi wants to take, sorry, when Naaman pleads, <coughs> pleads with the, pleads with him, and he says, please take the money, Elisha won't. Here, first of all, not only do we have a play on the word, I will take Meuma. Okay? But, he begs him here, in both cases they beg, but in this case, he takes. In this case, he does not. So what you have here is a very strong inversion of the story. And I just want to um, underscore this, but let's just see how this, he goes home. He comes to, most translated as the castle or the citadel, um, he takes from the two servants. Sorry, I, sh- I missed out one phrase at the end of Pasuk Chav Gimel, which is he. Even Gechazi doesn't get his hands dirty. Naaman gives the gifts to the Shnei Rav. Right? They carry it before him, before Gechazi. In other words, they're subservient to Gechazi. That word lafanav again. He takes it from the hand. Notice the words. Notice how quickly he goes and hides the loot. Right? He sends them away. And now he comes. He goes to his master. And Elisha says, Where have you been, Gechazi? Now, what would we expect it to say in Pasuk Hafei? What are we expecting it to say? Lifnei Adonav. Why doesn't it say Lifnei Adonav? Because he isn't subservient. He's El Adonav. He's not subordinate to his master. He's not listening to him. He's not in line with him. He is El Adonav. He is contrary to his master. He is not showing showing that that uh, quality. And that's when Elisha turns around to him and says, What do you mean you've gone nowhere? Loli bihalach. My heart did not go when you turned a man from his chariot Is this the time? And now look what he accuses him of. Of taking clothes, olive trees, vineyards, sheep, cattle, servants, maidservants. You sort of wonder, he just took some money. Is that, that what he's accusing of? Okay? But what we see here is certainly... This sense of he knows exactly where Gechazi is trying to go. Gechazi is trying to become wealthy off the Prophet. He is trying to build himself his own little empire with his own avadim and shvachot. This is where his mind is. It is not a sense of being ish elokim or anar ish elokim. It is not standing lifnei Hashem. And now, of course, he says, He, of course, gets the tzara'at. Where... What is this um, segment uh, teaching us here? 
Of course, we see that whereas Naaman, as I said before, was charitable and humble, Gehazi is obviously proud, even critical of his master. Um, critical of the master, because of course he says, my master has prevented him from giving us this wealth. He is critical of his own master. He's deceitful. <clears throat> and he's, uh, you know, doesn't listen to his master. By the way, no, I will say one last thing, which is, as you noticed, the last phrase, um, which was, which Naaman had said, My master comes to Beit Rimon and he leans on me. It's very interesting because here it also plays into it where it says, The whole thing is reversed. Now, what I would like to try and uh, say here is something maybe in a wider sense about Sarat and about this story. We're familiar with thinking about Sarat as something which is related to Lashon Hara. However, in the Tanakh, I'm not even sure the cases we uh, are relating to of Lashon Hara uh, and Sarat are necessarily that. I'd just like to point to maybe two episodes in which we talk about Sarat and then maybe try and put Sarat in a different light um, with this story. The first place I'd like you to look at is the story of Uziah in Divreya Mimbet. You'll find it in Divreya Mimbet, Perak Chavbav. There we hear about a king called Uziah. Uziah, by all means, was an amazing king. He was Doresh Elokim. Um, Divreya Mimbet, Second Chronicles, Perak Chavbav. We're going to be looking at the end of the at the end of the Perak. He was successful. He followed God. He was a tremendous builder and protector of Yerushalayim. He's even an agriculturalist. It talks about him as being an Ohev Adama. There is no one, one of the most uh, wonderful kings we ever had, King Uziah of Yehuda. But when you see, if you look at Pasuk Tetzayin, Perak Havav Pasuk Tetzayin, it says, Okhez Kato, when he was so strong, Gavali Bo'ad Lashchit, he became haughty till he destroyed himself. How did he destroy himself? He came to the temple and went on the altar to offer the incense. The Kohen comes in with 80 Kohanim and they they stand facing Uziyahu and they say, It is not for you. To bring the incense to God, Kila Kohanim Bnei Aronam Kodashim Laktir. Same in Amigdash, Kima Alta. Uziah, you've been so successful. You've been successful in the battlefield. You've been successful in agriculture. You've been successful in the sphere of spirituality. You've been successful in the sphere of government. But the temple is not your precinct. It is not for you. Lolacha, it's not for you. And what happens to him? Pasukutet. Notice the notion of anger. Okay, by Izaf Uziyahu, Uziyahu gets angry. Uviyadom makteret laktir, and he's holding a firepan. Uvezafor makonim batzarat zarcham mitzcho. Zarat shines from his forehead. Lifnei akonim beveit Hashem me'al lemizbach haktoret. Here we see another situation in which it is not necessarily lashon hara, but it is a sense of maybe a sense of overstepping one's boundaries. Stepping above oneself, excessive haughtiness, pride, arrogance. 
which are the things which lead to sarat. I would even argue that this is true in other more familiar cases that we're talking about. Uh, the story of Yoav ben Suriah in Shmuel Bet. If you remember the story, David was going to make peace with Avner. And he had arranged a whole peace deal. What does Yoav do? Behind the king's back goes and assassinates Avner. David curses him with a whole litany of curses, amongst which is the accusation of Tzarat. That he will be afflicted with Tzarat, him and all his children. What is going on there? Once again, we have a case of Yoav overstepping his boundaries, ignoring authority, ignoring and thinking he, he can call the shots, not the king. Even the story of Miriam. If you recall, Miriam talks against her brother Moshe. And she says, right, Harak, let me get the actual text. She says there, Harak, why is Moshe so special? It doesn't matter what, I mean, what he did in the story or what she accused him of. Is it just Moshe who God spoke to? Hello, Gambanu Diber Hashem, Hashem. We also, God has spoken to us. I think in these cases, not only do we have a challenge of authority, but she's saying, you know, what he thinks he's so special, we're special too. Now let me try and say something in this regard about Sarat. A lot of people think that Sarat is just related to Lashon Hara. I think Lashon Hara might be the symptom, but I don't think Lashon Hara is necessarily the illness. Sarat in the, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, as we see it, affects, affects our skin, our clothing, and the walls of our house. It's fascinating that these are the three boundaries which separate us from the world. If I've got the inside of me, then I've got my skin. The next thing around me is, next, uh, if you want, wrapping. Next to membrane is my clothing, and then my house. It's interesting, these are the three things, obviously, where we show ourselves to the world. Sometimes people are very concerned with their image. What does my house look like? What does my clothing look like? Today's world, even people will affect their physical appearance, their skin, right? All sorts of plastic surgery and tattoo and body arts and what have you. Because people are concerned, how do I look? Right? This is the mode of interaction. What impression? What impression do I make on the world? When, when It seems like Tara happens when I, in some way, corrupt that relationship. When I corrupt the relationship where I stop when other things, when I don't know my place, when I don't know where to stop, when my body should stop, when my clothing should stop, my house should stop, when, when I somehow pollute that, then that membrane starts crumbling. That membrane becomes affected with the disease. It becomes diseased. And that's when I get sarat. In other words, these skins are, are maybe corrupted because... They can't contain the ego which is inside. I'll, I'll maybe put it a different way. When we're talking about uh, Lashon Hara, what we do in Lashon Hara is we're talking about other people. Maybe we should stay within our own space. Or maybe, let's talk about the hierarchies. Maybe when I do Lashon Hara, I have to understand that I am me. Why, who am I to stand above another person and judge them? Because that's really what I do when I'm speaking Lashon Hara. I am in some way ripping apart the proper hierarchy which is that we are equals and now I'm standing above you I'm standing over you I am um, somebody ripping that that hierarchy which is the appropriate hierarchy between equals of collegiality and friendship and I am now in some way judging you 
And maybe that's why Sarat happens in that, in, in that situation. What I'm trying to say is that Sarat seems to be some sort of uh, eruption which takes place when the proper social order is not respected and honored. Because we have to understand that really, even when we are in a position of being an Ishkadol, inside being an Ishkadol should be a Narkatan. Or maybe put it this way, if we are really standing, Lifnei Hashem, and Hashem is our Adon, then we will always understand that we are not the Ishkadol, but we are the Narkatan, and that we don't have a reason for other people, to come out to us, but really we have to stand, Lifnehem, we have to stand before other people. I have one more minute and I just would like to give Gechazi, maybe just say one last thing about Gechazi. Gechazi comes out of this story as looking absolutely terrible. What he does is he takes the whole hierarchy which Elisha set up and he turns it upside down and sees religion as a means to giving himself wealth and sees God working for him instead of him working for God. And of course this is a terrible thing. But I would like to say one last thing. It's fascinating that in the very next chapter we see Arba Matzoraim, four lepers, and Chazal tell us this is Gechazi and his children. And in fact, they see a victory of God and what do they do when they see this victory of God? Initially, they start filling their own pockets. And then they turn around and say, wait, wait, there's a whole people waiting for deliverance. Maybe we should think about them. In other words, we see a sense that maybe even Gechazi himself understands that it shouldn't be all about him. It shouldn't be all self-serving. He does a tshuva of sorts. And it's fascinating that Chazal too relates to the tshuva of Gechazi because they say that a teacher should never push his student away Hands are quite important in this story. Rather, they should be uh, push aside with the left hand, the weak hand, and be makarev with the right hand. And what's the example they give? They give a few examples. One of which is, Elish shouldn't push Gechazi away so hard. Gechazi did something terrible. But maybe there is a possibility this, that this cause is never lost. Maybe we can always be allowed to uh, learn from our mistakes and to see the correct hierarchy we're never too late to be able to, stand, to understand and learn the lessons of Sarat. We can uh, see the notion that we are indeed standing with Hashem. Thank you very much. Thank you.